hundred years. <laughs> Seven hundred years into the future, mankind will leave our planet, leaving Earth's cleanup in the hands of one incredible machine. His name is Wally. After all these years, he's developed one little glitch. A personality. He's extremely curious. And just a little bit lonely, but all that is about to change. Wow. Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Where the hell did you get that idea, Hal? Dave, although you took very thorough precautions in the pod against my hearing you, I could see your lips move. Defense network computers. New. Powerful. Hooked into everything. Trusted to run it all. They say it got smart. A new order of intelligence. Then it saw all people as a threat, not just the ones on the other side. Decided our fate in a microsecond. Extermination. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4th, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes, it launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Why attack Russia? Aren't they friends now? Because Skynet knows that the Russian counterattack will eliminate its enemies over here. Jesus. <gasps> oh, that was wonderful! I feel so refreshed. <laughs> I think we should have had sex, but there weren't enough people. We'll use the orgasmatron. Uh, that's a good idea. Come on. You know, I think Beverly's nose will block you tonight. Oh, I had such a good time. All in all, I thought the party came off quite well. Certainly as good as last night or the night before's. Maybe not quite as good as last Saturday's, but you know something, Harold? I love a party with the things. Do you want to perform sex with me? Perform sex? Uh, I don't think I'm up to a performance, but I'll rehearse with you if you like. Okay. I just thought you might wonder if they have a machine here. Machine? I'm not getting into that thing. I'm, I'm strictly a hand operator. You know, I, I, I don't like anything with moving parts that are not my own. 
neither do I, Woody. This is Jeff Till with the 500years.org podcast. Today we're going to talk about the future, the singularity, and Jeff's big problem. Today's April 15th, 2016, which means today is tax day. I was very pleasantly surprised that I had only underpaid about $15,000 this year. You can't imagine what kind of relief that is. At the same time, how could you be relieved or happy still owing another fifteen grand to the federal government? I really can't. Anyways, today's episode is actually going to be a re- half a repost from my recent experience on the Singularity Bros podcast. I had not heard of this podcast before being asked to be on it. But it turns out to be a super-duper awesome, fun podcast. It's essentially three guys, Zach, Tom, and Scott, and they are sort of Massachusetts young weightlifter-type bros who talk about the singularity. And the singularity, as I understand it, is the point that we're coming up to where the technology that we have, such as the artificial intelligence, will be so overwhelming that it'll begin speeding the development of new technology. So we'll essentially have super smart intelligence super speeding the development of the new technology that's coming. And all sorts of wonderful things and potentially horrible things can happen when this moment occurs. Some of the topics they talk about include transhumanism, artificial intelligence, automation, nanotech, body modification in the future, virtual reality, augmented reality, and they don't just talk about the technologies as if it was a commercial review. They really go in to talk about what the implications are in the marketplace, what the implications are for ethics, what the implications are for human survival and flourishing. They go into some really unusual places where they talk about what happens if you were to upload your consciousness into the the cloud you know, what happens to your, your body that you have, what happens when life extension technology suddenly has people living a thousand years, what happens if we are able to enhance the intelligence of other animals, such as chimps or dolphins, and would we have some kind of moral obligation to do so? Uh, they often talk about driverless cars, which I thought was really cool. If you think about driverless cars, Uber is already investing heavily in this technology, and they already have the platform to summon a vehicle. In the future, it might very well be that no one owns a car, and that getting individual car rides is very cheap. You know, and this changes just about everything. Uh, it changes how the, the world is, how much resources we use in building vehicles. It changes everyone's personal finance from having a very significant monthly expense to almost uh, no monthly expense. And then it wildly changes uh, what people do for a living. Some people, of course. It might also change air travel because people might take a 10-hour car ride where they take it at night when they can sleep. And so now part of the airline industry is changed because of driverless cars, which they believe could be on the road within two to five to ten years. So it's not science fiction. It's very much a reality that we're going to see in a very short while. So you can find this podcast either through your iTunes 
podcast app. Uh, it's Singularity Bros, B-R-O-S, or you can go to singularitybros.com and check it out there. I highly recommend it. I'm 15 episodes in out of 30, and it was also a delight to be on the show, and I'm going to post that very show after I have this conversation. Part of the show that is so much fun is that it's a total new range of topics that I don't get to explore or think about very much. For years, I've been listening to podcasts about education and economics and liberty, and it's just an absolute thrill to find something new to listen to that really stretches your mind and challenges what you believe. One small thing that I really found provocative in driverless cars was the idea of child mobility. Right now, there's basically, as we've discussed before, two two options for school. There's public school or, you know, private school, sort of the same thing. And then there's homeschooling. And there's really nothing in between. And a lot of the in-between stuff sounds like a logistical nightmare for parents. Already with us unschooling our children, every day of the week, there is some one or two major sort of drives we have to do to either take the kids to taekwondo or to take them to the play date or to take them to horseback riding. And it can be very disruptive to a parent's day to the point where you have to have at least one parent who is almost like a full-time driver and for certainly not going to work. It would be interesting when we get to driverless cars that the kids could have access to the entire city. They could suddenly become mobile within the community so that if they wanted at 11 o'clock to go visit their friends to do a project or to play a game, they could order a car and very cheaply get there without any any adults. They could also do this if they wanted to meet other families at a museum and the mother didn't want to come along. They could very well order their cars and now have access to the entire city, whether it was to go to a museum or to a park or to even do errands such as picking up the groceries. And I think with driverless cars, we haven't even thought of even, you know, 90% of the applications on how it will change the world. Almost in every Singularity Brothers podcast, the boys eventually, or the men, the bros, I guess, eventually come to the conclusion that there will likely be severe technological unemployment. And if there's two issues that I think I'm a little bit more optimistic about is that catastrophic technological unemployment probably won't be such a big deal. And their second response to the unemployment is this idea of big or basic income guarantee and how this program, which is sort of like a, a, a unfettered welfare for all, but without the stigma and without the means testing and without the controls or limitations on what you can spend on, will be absolutely necessary to meet the catastrophic technological unemployment. So I just, uh, uh, as much as I've enjoyed all the discussion, I always get a little frustrated when those parts of the podcast come up. Anyways, if you're unfamiliar with technological unemployment, uh, from Wikipedia, technological unemployment is the loss of jobs caused by technological change, 
Such change typically includes the introduction of labor-saving machines or more efficient processes. Historical examples include artisan weavers reduced to poverty after the introduction of mechanized looms. And if you've listened to my podcast number two, I actually used the loomist uh, as someone who would lose a job. A contemporary example of technological unemployment is the displacement of retail cashiers by self-service tills, which we've seen on Facebook, this is just me talking, not Wikipedia, as being the common response to minimum wage increases, more so than even technological reasons. That technological change can cause short-term job losses is widely accepted. The view that it can lead to lasting increases in unemployment has long been controversial. Participants in the technological unemployment debates can be broadly divided into optimist and pessimist. Optimists agree that innovation may be disruptive to jobs in the short term, yet hold the various compensation effects ensure there is never a long-term negative impact on jobs. Whereas pessimists contend that, at least in some circumstances, new technologies can lead to a lasting decline in the total number of workers in employment. The phrase technological unemployment was popularized by Lord Keynes, interesting, in the 1930s. If uh, you're not familiar, Lord Keynes uh, is the obviously the father, the grandfather of Keynesianism, which is the sort of the economic philosophy that everyone in the world holds right now and is often a counterpoint or a counterforce to what we consider good economics, which is the Austrian school. Finishing up, yet the issue of machines displacing human labor has been discussed since at least Aristotle's time. So it's nice that they've managed to come up with two nice categories. I think I'm an optimist, whereas my friends on the Singularity Bros tend to be pessimist. And I'll explain a little bit why. First, let's make the case for pessimism in technological unemployment. I'm going to read a bit from this article, which is on futuristspeaker.com, and it's all about driverless cars, and the title of the article is 128 Things That Will Disappear in the Driverless Car Era, and this article does a fantastic job at showing how catastrophic one single change, which is the introduction of cars without drivers, could put so many people out of work. And I think I heard a number that it's something like 3.4 million people make their living driving a car or a truck or some other vehicle that could be automated. The article has a bunch of upfront explanation about driverless cars, so I'm going to skip that because I think we've already touched on that. But here are the jobs and things that will disappear. The first category is driving jobs that will disappear with driverless cars, and they are taxi drivers, Uber and Lyft drivers, delivery jobs, meaning FedEx, UPS, USPS, courier jobs, bus drivers, truck drivers, valet jobs, chauffeurs, and limo drivers. Related jobs that might disappear, road construction flag people, (laughs) which I've always found those people to be just about the the largest waste of of human energy ever, uh, having someone just hold a flag and make a career out of it, but I digress. Driver's ed teachers, traffic reporters, traffic analysts, car licensing and registration, driver's driver's test people, rental car agents. I won't be too sad to see them go either. 
crash testers. Specialty vehicle jobs that will disappear. Forklift drivers, lawnmower operators, snowplow operators, water truck drivers, fire truck drivers, water taxis, ambulance drivers, trash truck drivers. Probably will still need someone to ride on the trash truck to pick up the cans, at least until they get the robots to do it. Farm and equipment vehicles include tractor drivers, combine operators, swather operators, not sure what those are, baler operators, sprayer operators, horse trail drivers, grain truck operators, automated fruit harvester operators. Construction and equipment vehicles, crane operators, road grade operators, earth movers, street sweeper operators, black hole operators, trencher operators, cement truck operators, fuel truck operators. I could see that one taking a while, especially someone, especially if it's not totally unionized where you have to have a special driver and a special operator. So in the case of a crane, if it's the same person, you probably still need a human person to operate the crane, at least in the for the next uh, few decades, I would guess. Car sales, finance, and insurance, insurance industry position, auto sales. Auto sales new and used. Well, God bless this. Not that I'm cheering for anyone to be unemployed, but I've had some of the most awful experiences buying a car with some of the most deceptive practices I have ever seen. The amount of physical and emotional toil they can purposely put on someone during the car shopping process is enough for me to almost sign anything and almost definitely not want to go. They actually use this tactic where they will tell you that the finance managers, after you've made your decision to buy, are too busy to sign. Someone invariably came in sick that day, and they'll actually hold you there through dinner time to the point where your blood sugar is so low. They won't let you go and get food to the point where you're just worn down. And then what they do is they bring you in. You're tired. You're sick of being there. You're starving. And they start laying in all of these upsell items, such as low jack and underbody rust protection and a bunch of other bullshit. So anyway, auto salesmen, I'm sorry, but you gotta go. Account managers, auto auctions, credit managers, yeah, screw them too. Loan underwriters, insurance agents and sales reps, nothing against them, but it's still never my favorite experience. Insurance claim adjusters, insurance call center agents. So at least that's just an auto insurance, I'm guessing. Miscellaneous jobs to disappear. Traffic reporters on the news. Okay, okay, I'm fine with that. Maybe they can find something else to report. Sobriety checkpoint people. Good, let's have them go. I always thought that was a uh, kind of devious and malicious type of job, at least sneaky at the minimum. Stoplight installers, pothole repair people. I would think there would still be potholes in a post-driverless environment. Emission testers. Okay, emission testers. I didn't think I'd have this much commentary on these jobs. Emission testers is some government bullshit. It's just a $30 or $40 fine that they get to post on your car, even though for the last like 20 years, everyone's had a pretty much a brand new car that could pass every single year. Road and parking lot stripers, night repair crews. You still might need night repair crews. That'll take a while to phase out, unless these driverless cars and the existence, continued existence of ice and snow continue to make potholes and degrade roads. 
I mean, roads are a slowly wasting asset. They will need repair. Anyways, I'm not trying to deride the list because I agree with most of these jobs going away with a wildly improved transportation system. Steering wheels, okay, vehicle features that'll disappear. We don't have to go through those, but they include steering wheels, gas pedals, talking GPS, etc. Stuff that you won't need anymore. And presumably the manufacturer of these things will reduce jobs. Vehicle repair, roadside assistant, auto repair shops, body shops, tow trucks, glass repair, auto locksmith, transmission repair shops, auto parts stores. Some of this will probably still exist for hobbyists who choose to drive, unless they make uh, driving a car illegal, which I've heard, I don't have a reference, but I've heard that could be the case if driverless cars are so much statistically safer than driver cars, drivered, driven cars, that they would make the act of driving a car, except maybe on a closed racetrack, illegal. Cars would still need to be repaired, such as an auto repair shop. They just might not be retail operations. They might be owned by Uber, and we just don't actually go to one, which really is kind of a tedious uh, waste of an afternoon, too, for the, the person getting their car fixed, not necessarily the auto worker. So other things that will disappear, gas stations. I imagine convenience stores still might exist, but you might actually just send your driverless car without you to go to the convenience store, which might not have a retail front anymore. But gas station employees are eliminated. Car washes, well, again, cars are still going to get dirty. Oil change business, they'll still need oil. Detail shops, tire shops, brake shops, emission testing. Again, bullshit. Alignment shops, these will probably just be moved to the fleet owners of the driverless cars. Let's see, driving-related issues that will disappear. This is actually kind of fun. Road rage, fender benders, car theft, getting lost, lost cars in parking lots, driving tests, traffic stops, crash test dummies. Not jobs, but they are things that disappear. Parking-related things that will probably wildly change. Parking lots, parking garages, uh, etc., etc., Court justice system, traffic cops will disappear. Now, I don't, I don't think that's so bad. I've never been a big fan of traffic cops. I don't think they've ever made me feel safe. I don't suddenly feel this, this boon of safety when I see one driving behind me. In fact, I feel abject terror. Traffic courts, driver's license, patrol cars, and officers, DUIs and drunk driving. Thumbs up. Already, thank you, Uber, with your, your driver for saving me any of that. Sobriety checkpoints, the boot, road rage school. Then they have a bunch of highway-related stuff, such as traffic jams and way stations. Highway repair, I still think they have 10 highway repair jobs. I still, I still think those won't be phased out for quite a while, as I previously said. Traffic laws will disappear. Again, this isn't necessarily employment, but it's more stuff that changes. Speeding tickets, failing to stop at a stoplight or stop sign. DUIs, reckless driving, driving in the wrong direction, passing in a no-passing zone, unsafe lane changes, and driver profiling. In our autonomous future, every car will be driven exactly the same way, so ageist, sexist, racist, and regional driver prejudices will cease to exist. So no more making fun of old ladies and Japanese people. So that's a pretty crushing list of people who will lose their jobs. And a lot of times when we think about what's going to happen to those people, there's been some mythology that says, well, someone will be needed to repair the 
the automated thing, the driverless car. And obviously that can't, there can't be enough jobs created through that. So you can see where the pessimist gets their ammunition here. It does look like a terrible and horrific, catastrophic loss of human employment. And when you lose human employment, obviously we think that we lose human flourishing everywhere from not being able to live a nice life to the possibility of losing your home and your food supply and starving to death in an alley by yourself. So that's pretty depressing, but let's put some optimism towards this technological unemployment dilemma. The first part I would like you to consider is that we have an enormous precedent of this happening over and over again, probably about 6,000 to 10,000 years of information where new technologies were entered that saved labor, yet still there was labor left to do and people still had jobs. So even if you took the guy who used to have his job carrying onions, you know, from the field to his to the village, and then one day he saw someone with a wheelbarrow carrying the onions, he was certainly like, this is bullshit. What am I going to do? I'm the guy who carries the onions. And then the guy with the wheelbarrow saw the same thing happen when some smart guy decided to tie the wheelbarrow to a horse. And he was like, bullshit. That was my job to push the wheelbarrow full of onions. And we've seen really big ones that probably have the same scale and transformative capability or transformative capacity that the singularity will have. So very much in the, about 150 years ago, about 98% of the population was in the job of producing food. And if you think about that, that pretty much is like almost one for one, even if it was only 90%. That means that every single person was basically employed just to get food for themselves and their family. With only a few other people, I guess, who would have been making doorknobs, candlesticks, and what have you. Now, if someone were to go back and tell these people that in 150 years, or let's even say, like, within your lifetime, uh, 90% of you aren't going to be farmers anymore, they would shriek in terror and would believe that everything was going to go to hell. But in fact, what happened is they, as food became cheaper, people had more time and more capital to do things like manufacture televisions or manufacture appliances, and so jobs were created in the factory. But nobody could possibly imagine that the job of manufacturing a television would have existed in the agricultural economy. Nor could someone who was in a factory who was displaced either by automation or by moving the factory overseas would be able to predict that there would be all these IT and technical jobs and service jobs that weren't available before, even to the point where we still didn't know even much much more than a decade ago that there would be such a job as developing mobile apps or doing SEO optimization or being a Facebook marketer. The fact is, we can just never know. And some of the displacements have been historically huge. The adoption of fossil fuels, the combustion engine, and the adoption of electricity, the widespread adoption, were just as massive, I think, as the singularity in many ways. The, the fact that we went from having no motors and nothing at all, uh, and no light, no motors, 
and no communication technology to having all of that stuff was probably just as large of a shift. So the optimist in me says when the singularity comes, there will be work. That work is probably endless. Hopefully we'll do less of it and we'll retire earlier, maybe really early. Maybe we'll only have five-hour work weeks and retire at the age of 28. But I think there will still be income to be had in the future. The frustrating problem with it, I know, is that, again, we just can't know what those jobs are going to be. There's no lack of imagination that we have. It's just impossible for us to know until we're there. I think it'd be funny if you showed a video or a picture of me working here in my shorts in my air-conditioned office, mostly either talking into a microphone or reading Patriots articles while I work. And if you showed that to someone from 1850 who either worked in the farm or worked in a copper mine, they would be terrified. They'd be, look, in the future they've eliminated work altogether. That poor man doesn't even own a shovel. In the, I think it's 2015 movie Her by Spike Jones, starring Scarlett Johansson and Joachim Phoenix, there was a man who falls in love with an operating system, an artificially intelligent operating system. And it's an absolutely brilliant movie. I can't recommend it enough. I watched it twice in the same day because I enjoyed it so much. Anyway, they do something very clever in there. And because artificial intelligence exists in this quasi-futuristic drama, they have to give the man a job that seems reasonable. And so they were kind of clever in what they did. They made him a writer of handwritten love letters. And this, of course, seems like something that could be very hard to reproduce with a machine or an AI. And it was, of course, a really cute uh, plot device, too, because some of the very early tasks that the man and the female AI were working on together were, were love letters. So it allowed, allowed the AI to experience the language of love and allowed them to have this very intimate beginning to their relationship. But the part that's a shortcoming of this idea is that the job that he would have had would have been one that we have no idea what it was. So they would have probably been more accurate to just make up a nonsense word and say that was his job than try to predict what the job might have been. Another point of optimism is that as technological shifts have happened over time, the quality and subject of the work we've been doing has been getting more interesting. It's taken less time to do and requires less physically grueling activities. So our copper miner or our farmer probably had to work, you know, 10 or 12 hours a day for six days a week and came home exhausted to his dark home and hungry family. As the factories moved in, in the middle 1900s or the late 1800s, the days did get shorter. And while the work was equally as tedious, it was slightly more controlled and less dirty. And of course, when the knowledge age came in, people started doing more interesting work, whether it was com programming computers or being a marketer or a salesperson, the work hours went down, the quality of life got better. And of course, at the same time, what you needed to afford became uh, much easier to acquire. 
since the quality of life for a poor person or a middle-class person now is superior to that of a rich person 100 years ago, just with even the presence of Novocaine, as we talked before on the wealth inequality episode. If there's one area I am pessimistic about, it's going to be the role of school and how school will either change or not change to deal with the new types of jobs that we need. And I talk a little bit about this on the Singularity Bros podcast at the end of this podcast. Taylor Pearson wrote a book called The End of Jobs, and he very nicely sets out four different distinct time periods of labor. And this is global, but you could also think of it, I'm thinking of it in the United States. And they were agricultural, that then moved to the industrial economy, then then moved to the knowledge economy, which he argues that we're coming toward the end of, or it's going to start tapering off, which is why we're seeing a lot of the destruction of what we traditionally have thought of of the middle class. And the new economy will be the entrepreneurial economy. And his thinking, and I agree with this, is that the means of production have been democratized. And that's not really the right word. It's really individuated. But basically, it's very inexpensive now to start a business and to become your own income provider. It used to be to start a factory, it used to cost millions and millions of dollars. And then later you needed an office and you needed landlines and that was very expensive. Now just about anybody can work from their home uh, with a cheap computer and access to the internet, set up a quick website and serve the long end of the tail, meaning all of the niche products that weren't available in the old economy. And what can be dangerous with this is that if you think about our schooling system, we still have that factory approach where we're actually teaching kids and conditioning kids for 15,000 hours in total time how to work in the industrial or the factory mindset. And the people in the knowledge economy have had to either use university or their wits to be, be that better person in the knowledge economy but the people who are schooled in the old-fashioned way are going to be doubly handicapped when we go to this new entrepreneur economy. Now, if we go back to our driving jobs, there's something kind of cruel and sad about the idea that 3.4 million people's best job that they could get was driving a car, which only takes a 15-year-old a week or two to learn in dedicated training. So the sad question is whether... Should those people have been able to use that 15,000 hours to learn a knowledge worker or an entrepreneurial worker type skill instead of having all of that time ill preparing them to just drive a car or a truck? Or should we let them just sort of dick off and let them spend that childhood playing video games or playing football and doing whatever they want? and then let them have this joyous childhood, and then they could have picked up that two-week of training to become a driver and then had their careers. So that's my pessimism, is that the society at large, through its compulsory school system, is preparing the kids of the future for certain failure if they can't unschool themselves, de-school themselves, and figure out the new economy. The technological unemployment discussion then always 
introduces the next part, which is what do we do with the hordes of people who do no longer have an income? And that leads to the conclusion that we need to have a special type of free money program, which many people refer to as the Basic Income Guarantee, or BIG. According here to Wikipedia, basic income, an unconditional basic income, also called basic income, basic income guarantee, universal basic income, universal demograt or citizen's income, is a form of social security system in which all citizens or residents of a country regularly receive an unconditional sum of money, either from a government or some other public institution. That's interesting. Although I don't know what another public institution is besides government. In addition to any income received from elsewhere. So it's essentially, it's not like, it has a couple things that are different than welfare. It's not means tested. It doesn't have uh, prescriptive directions on what you can spend money on. So it's not like food stamps or housing credits that have to be used in one particular way. And there's no stigma or attitudes attached to it because absolutely everybody gets it. And to implement basic income guarantee here, I've heard Scott Satins, if I believe that, if I pronounce that correctly, on on the Singularity Bros say it would be about a $3 trillion program here in the United States, which would give everyone $12,000 per year, which isn't a lot of money to live on. But I suppose that is the difference between life and death if we're sort of using the dichotomous approach of if it's all or nothing. Now, this partly assumes that everybody is sort of a solo agent within the world, that if we do lose our jobs, that all of a sudden we are we are cast out of our homes and set to starve, and that none of us necessarily have families or friends or communities or neighborhoods, churches or social networks that might be able to help but instead, it's a very sort of di- di- dichotomic, dichotomous uh, situation of either absolute poverty and starvation, or we have a, what we traditionally think of as a job. And I don't think that might be the case. But I have sort of three main objections with the idea of big, and I'm going to go through them now. And I'm going to start with the libertarian, the intellectual argument that because it's a government program, that its birth is in force and violence. And so if you're not familiar with this, which you probably are if you listen to my podcast, if the people who fund it, which would be taxpayers, don't want to do it, the government comes and makes them. And first they command them to, then they might call them to court, then they might send police to your house, and if you choose to still not pay, then the police will gun you down if you try to protect yourself If you want to think about it another way, if it was moral for the government to do this, it would also be moral for the government to just hand guns to all the people without jobs and say, go into your neighbor's house or this rich guy's house and take their money. Few people actually find that idea very appealing, but it's really all you're doing when you put the mysterious government agent in between the people who want something and the people who have something. Secondly, from a libertarian point of view, it's the government. It's the same thing that is the largest agency of mass murder in the world. It's the same agency that has imprisoned 
more people than anyone in all of history. It's the same agency where every time you put a P&L statement to something it does, it just looks awful, which is why you always hear the arguments against Amtrak and the USPS. The reasons why those are brought up is because it's the only time the government has the guts to put a P&L on something. Everything else just has an L statement, just a giant total loss. It's the same agency that when we have an experience with them, we know it from the DMV or the IRS, because otherwise most of the government we never experience at all unless you're a soldier or a retired person, or you're on the wrong end of a transaction with the police. So we know the experience is bad, we know it's immoral, and we know it's going to be woefully inefficient and costly. So it's hard to think of a future you know, so awesome that we count on such a disgusting organization as the government to take care of our income. We also know that if it's the government, it's going to become highly politicized. So again, this is the same organization that looks like it's about to hire Donald Trump as its, its prime executive. And you can just imagine how every election, some Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Hillary Clinton type would waive this threat of taking away our basic income at every time they could, or they would use it to promise us more. And we would just be these pathetic people groveling, you know, please don't take it away. And if you think the talk about a Mexican wall or how immigrants are going to steal our jobs is bad now, just wait till we have something like basic income where the Republicans and probably Democrats too will be absolutely ferocious with the idea of immigration to the point where that wall will be electrified. Uh, it would just turn into kind of a, a really probably pretty disgusting media talking point that would constantly be hammered and constantly be negotiated with, held over our heads as either a punishment if we didn't do the right thing or as a reward if we do make the correct political decision. I mean, so just imagine, just imagine right now, Fox News five years after Big is put into place, and it's the, what, the 2020 elections, it would be absolutely nasty. I think politicizing it also further, I mean, we've, it's already, this has already happened, but further has removed any charitable instincts from regular people. People now think they are performing a significant moral accomplishment when they go vote. And by that, I mean going to a school cafeteria and spending 10 minutes waiting in line to check a piece of paper every four years. And they actually think that activity is some major achievement when really it doesn't do anything. And all it allows them to do is to pretend they're being moral, pretend they're being charitable when they're not really into it at all. And so I think it'd be much better if we want to help poor people, if the people who were giving were active in that, 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 that gift or active in that help and passionate about it, not just sort of this made up thing where I voted for one guy over the other and now I'm a good person. My second main argument is that I believe we do have some pretty good precedent on how a program like this would work. And I know the big advocates say it's not the same thing as welfare, since it is unconditional, it doesn't change depending on if you actually make additional income, 
etc. But it's still the main feature of both programs is free money for a person who doesn't have an income. So I think there's enough similarity to there to say we, we could at least look at some of the lessons we've learned through history, whether we want to go all the way back to the Romans and their bread and circuses, or whether we just want to use the welfare experience here in the United States. I think most people would consider the program to be somewhat between unspectacular to kind of miserable as it's gone on. The big advocates say that with basic income, that a lot of creativity will be inspired. A lot of enterprise will come out of that as people pursue their passions, not having forced to work a job that just pays the bills. But I don't think we've seen a huge outflow of creativity in the people who are on welfare. If you've ever worked a soup kitchen or, or lived in a poor neighborhood, uh, you'll see some of the most uninspired people that you'll ever see in your life. You'll see people who are filled with complacency. And when you don't have to have that hustle, complacency is often what sets in. And I'm not trying to make a work ethic or a deserves argument or a fair share argument. I'm just talking about what seems to be what happens to people in this situation. Most of them are probably horribly dissatisfied. And the problem becomes intergenerational as they learn that this is how you live, that you get a check from the government. They teach their children to be dependent in the same way. And there you also come up with a huge danger because we have the most financially incompetent organization in the world, the US government, which is 17 or $18 trillion in debt, who is looking at some point to probably default on that money. If you make more and more people dependent upon that, that check, when the government fails, all of these people are going to have absolutely nothing. It's much better to teach them how to be productive and self-sufficient than to teach them persistent intergenerational dependency. What we created looked like a safety net. This is kind of a neat metaphor. But what if it was actually a spider web that consumed and kept people intergenerationally poor? Also, if you subsidize something, you get more of it. So if the opportunity to not be productive, to not be self-sufficient is attractive, we're just going to get more people in it. So even, even though there might be jobs in the new economy, there'll be less people willing to take them. Some people could argue that the welfare system has been absolutely horrible for the concept of family. And you'll see in a lot of inner city neighborhoods, it's sort of almost cliche that there's a lot of single mothers, there's absentee fathers, there's children who, or families where multiple fathers have contributed a child, but do not contribute income. And a lot of this is based on economics. So there's very old fashioned notions of like the shotgun marriage, or waiting until wet, you know, you don't have sex until you're in wedlock or you try to find a man who can be a provider and be a stable force within the family. But when welfare was introduced, that incentive, that economic incentive to find a man who was productive and high quality and loving and going to stick around disappeared, so did the, the risk of having childhood largely disappear. And I overall, you know, we see what happens is these kids raised without fathers, 
then look for their male role models in gangs, and it just sort of sets up a uh, factory line into the military and prisons. I don't know the details of how the program actually goes down, but I wonder if people would be incentivized to have more children. After all, if you have one kid, does he get a basic income as well? And if I have five children, can I get my $5,000 a month? Which is now starting to resemble a pretty serious income. That's about what I took home after taxes when I made first made $100,000 per year. The industry that does get encouraged in a welfare community is often some of the less desirable things in society. That's also where we see the, the emergence of gangs. We see the emergence of drug distribution, of theft, and bootlegging. So perhaps those things with big, since big doesn't penalize for additional income, maybe people wouldn't pursue those lines of, of business that, that don't have any government reporting. But they also may be the only things they're being taught if people aren't being taught by their parents or encouraged to be these these productive and value-producing workers, they're probably going to act just in the way that their parents do. So if the knowledge to grow wouldn't be passed on, the knowledge to get better, to do better, to produce value, and we know school doesn't do it, and we know their parents wouldn't know how, they would eventually become permanently separated from the creative class, and the people who were producing would look like space aliens to them. So I could see anyone who was concerned about reducing income mobility uh, wouldn't probably like this program because it would likely create a permanent underclass of people who didn't know how to do anything and probably didn't care to do anything. So I think that basically sums up our historical precedent with the free money program. And perhaps it's not a perfect analogy since welfare is a little bit different but I think it's enough information to see that there definitely could be unintended consequences that don't come off on the initial value proposition of the basic income guarantee. My third argument is that I find it to be very unimaginative and uninspiring. It's hard to think that the world, the future, is going to be so amazing with all of these the new innovations and these new labor-saving devices and virtual reality and life extension, etc., where the, the world is so bright that everybody is on government welfare. It just almost seems like the opposite of what should be. Everything is going to be this brand new thing we can barely imagine, and yet the best we can come up with to help people without income is to use what's basically like a 50-year-old program that we have to grovel uh, to Donald Trump to give to us. So that part's uninspiring. And what I'd like to think is if that we're so imaginative as a society in building these technologies and these new models of, of operation, and perhaps even the new version of humanity, is that we would expect that the charity be awesome too. And so we can just go about and think... If we were to imagine a program to help the poor that was sort of had singularity flavor, you know, what characteristics would it have? And I would like to think that it doesn't have crusty old government flavor, but has new shiny tech world type flavor. 
So first, I would love to see it be voluntary, which means that people aren't forced by the government to participate in the program, but instead, with their compassion and their interest, they join this in a charitable pursuit. And when people are genuinely charitable, they tend to be more involved. And there could be a very good case that not everybody would have to participate in the charity because other people have different interests. So some people would have interest in keeping care of the poor. Other people might have interest in saving certain species of animals. Other people may have charities where they're interested in sharing knowledge or advancing the arts. Other people have charities where they want to help solve disease. And so not everybody has to necessarily be a benefactor of the poor. Now, we were sort of trained that through both school and our government that we have to pay our taxes and that charity is achieved through the government mechanism, even though it's probably not very good at doing it. So there'll be some reversal in how people think. And I'm sure there's some people who doubt that people would give to charity to help the poor. But if that was the case, then we would have to doubt the democratic process because right now people already vote to have the government do this, which means that they actually want it if we were to believe in what they choose to vote for. Now, maybe they wouldn't. Maybe we would look at public choice theory and realize that people will vote for all sorts of stuff that they won't actually do in real life. But let's even presume some of those people are liberals. And so we know at least that's what 30 or 40% of the population would gladly volunteer some of their money. And in this perfect uh, singularity world, let's let's not have the you know the seventy thousand people on payroll at human health and services. Let's not be fighting the wars. Let's not be blowing our money on school. And people would have a lot of discretionary income to give to the the super singularity charity program. We also know that a big population of people in the United States are Christians, and by their beliefs and their doctrine, they are supposed to be charitable. So there's already two big groups that could step up and give lots of money to help the poor. Now, if they're also into it, they might actually try to offer other types of help besides just a blank check, such as advice or information or actual real help, training, uh, housing. There's all sorts of ways people could help in much more active ways than just blindly transferring money. Another feature of a sort of market-based or futuristic charity program is just like apps or software or consumer products, there would be tons and tons of choices from low cost to expansive for both givers and recipients. So some givers might not want to give quite as much and some recipients might feel like they only need some coverage and other people might want really intensive programs where they really get involved and the recipients want intensive programs where they can really get helped and they would be able to opt in to these different types of relationships. Another aspect of the program is that probably should be highly digital and information driven and contextual so that it's not just the stupid um, and thoughtless transfer of base money. You know, I know the arguers, the advocates for big say that's a key part. That's what introduces sort of market dynamics into the person's choice because that individual is allowed to spend the money and I don't think that part has to necessarily go away it's just that if we have information and we have context we might be able to do more to help people 
It would also be personalized to each individual, to their needs, and personalized to each giver's preferences. Again, that can be achieved just with the money, but for some people, maybe a, a gross pile of money isn't the right thing. Uh, if you have someone who's persistently depressed, then they might not just need a check to stay in their room. They might need some medicine or they might need some therapy. If you have like a guy who is an alcoholic who likes to beat his wife and children as an absentee from work, the best thing to give him is not more beer and cigarette money, but maybe he needs a program. Uh, other people might need uh, training, other people might need job placement, relocation. Some people might need to just separate from bad family members. Some people might just need medicine. So giving money isn't always a problem solver to someone who's having a problem with income. You could also use deep analytics or advanced analytics to learn all sorts of stuff from givers and users' behavior. Uh, you could learn it to study the causes of poverty. You could use it to study what solutions work. You could monitor fraud and abuse, and you could optimize resources across geographies. There's probably all sorts of stuff you could do with the big data of helping people. It could also be social networked. So family and friends can be part of the solution, and to the extent a sense of community, regardless of locale, in helping people down on their luck. Uh, it's kind of awful to think about, but maybe you know, if there's 800 busybody mothers who want to monitor where their donations are going, the recipients might very well benefit from having 800 mothers helping them out. Now, I know that was a nightmare. That was enough to get me to throw away my basic income check and go find a job. It would be highly efficient, of course, with no needs for bureaucrats or administrators. The current welfare agency has 70,000 employees. So we wouldn't need that. And we also know that anything with the government, it's an institution that must survive and grow and will always become grossly bloated and inefficient. Uh, it could utilize resources we wouldn't expect, such as, you know, by re redirecting surplus housing, foods or goods. Think of the sharing economy. It's sort of like an Uber uh, of houses and food and goods. So we're not throwing things away. That could be given to people who could just use the stuff. Uh, it would be recuperative. So this is one thing. This is sort of an evil word in welfare and big uh, conversations is that something should be recuperative meaning or restorative, meaning the program itself should help people get to become self-sufficient and shouldn't be self-propagating. And people always, I guess they think of that as, as a stigma effect, but I think that's probably still a good thing. In fact, you know, it could even be incentivized to create these these smarter, more productive value generating people in the new economy and not keeping them away from the creative class. Let them become part of the creative class, part of the entrepreneur class. Let them enjoy all of the the beauty that the modern age brings. So it should also solve the dependency and the cost generation the cross generational trap. But I don't really know how, but this is sort of the beauty of trying to imagine things in a much better, highly technological future. And and could it be profitable? That's kind of a weird thing to think about. I mean, maybe there's communities that have mutualized insurance by neighborhoods or towns, and you know nobody wants a deadbeat on their street, and nobody wants to be in a lurch, so people contribute to this insurance 
on an ongoing basis, sort of like the idea of disability or unemployment insurance, where the community holds people up and people voluntarily contribute to it because they want the coverage when it's their time. Now, here's here's kind of a, another idea that's still forced, but might be kind of interesting. Right now, let's assume that like 25% of our tax revenue goes to health and human services. Now, what if we had that option, or you could check a box on your your tax return and say, I want it to go to Amazon's wealth, you know, human care program. And so Amazon would run a competing welfare or, you know, human services program alongside the government. Now, this is politically ridiculous because no organization within the government would ever suggest that they have competition, especially by someone as wily and clever as Amazon. So just entertain me for a second. The Amazon organization would obviously obviously be way more efficient and would not need the 70,000 employees to do the program. They Their overhead in administration cost and delivery cost would probably be so good that not only could Amazon take a margin, a profit margin, off this money, they could actually deliver more benefits and more cash to the people in the program who, and keep in mind that the not only do the taxpayers get to pick whether it goes to the private one of the private organizations or to the government organization, but the participants, the people who get the care, they also get to pick whether they participate in the Amazon or the government program. So not only would it probably be much more efficient and provide more benefits both to the company, the giver, and the participants, but Amazon could probably put being this sort of master of information could bundle a bunch of other things within the program. Because one thing that people without incomes generally have is, is a huge lack of knowledge, a huge lack of information. Uh, the ones today are some of probably the more financially and business illiterate people in our community. So we could provide financial tools. They could get online shopping tools for the best deals. Amazon could even put together bundles that they could bulk order and have better pricing. And there could be nutrition tools where it's like, if you buy this, you're not only going to have your money go further, but you're going to make sure your family gets all the right things that they need to be healthy and to thrive. There could be tools for helping you uh, stop smoking or to stop drinking, to be recruitive and those things if they're, if they're sort of harming. There could be a job tool. Uh, this tool could look for intense job demand, and maybe it finds out that if you just moved 90 minutes north, all you need, um, all you would need to do is take this online class for 90 days, hide your tattoos, and you'll be hired. Which a lot of times people don't know. If you ever go to like Flint, Michigan, or see that movie Roger and Me, the people don't realize that they just need to move to a different city to thrive. Instead, they all just stay there. But what if they? actually knew where all the job demand was, could be quickly trained and then put to work in the right place. And so once once they do that and they opt in, you know, you, the, the Amazon calls the driverless truck and moves you to your new Airbnb housing. Ultimately, I would think that the Amazon Care Program would not want to keep people into the program. They would realize that the thin margin they were making from the taxpayer money 
is not anywhere near as good as if they were to develop them into full Amazon shopping consumers. So it would do everything it could, and this is maybe this is fantasy, but everything that it could to move these people into a place where they have big incomes and they can be big profitable customers. So that's just that's just another idea of how a singularity class charity program could work. There could be other models as well. Uh, I've heard the brothers talk about perhaps we'll rent pieces of our brain for collaborative computer processing. Uh, maybe every kid uh, gets their first 3D printer and makes his own robot when he gets to be 13 years old, and that's the thing that works for you and makes all your food. Maybe there's sort of a freemium type thing where companies you know, ship, <laughs> ship you a certain amount of food for free, but if you want to get rid of the advertising, you've got to pay. Uh, so that there's other ways that people with who are struggling to make an income can stay alive and thrive and eventually improve their lot consistently throughout their lives. Lastly, I would say we just don't really know what the future is going to bring. We don't know how the, the situation is going to be. I would not want to use, not rely on the blunt instrument of government and the unimaginative and uninspiring program and install that right now, not knowing that the market might very well totally transform things in a way that, is, that we can't even imagine, uh, much like it has historically, where a poor person from 100 years ago cannot even imagine the type of things that they would have right now, even if their station in life hadn't changed. So those are my basic thoughts about technological unemployment and the basic income guarantee idea. I could be woefully wrong, so I will continue to listen to the arguments and keep my mind as open as possible. Josh, you failed too. I agree. Josh, I think you were a very, very ineffective leader. Your decision-making was absolutely terrible. James, you built a batting cage. You took up all the space Mark, this is a sales task. You didn't sell a single thing. And again, in this boardroom, we've never had a team lose so badly. You're all fired. All four are fired. Go home. Okay, one last thing. Almost there, almost to hear my appearance on Singularity Brothers. I've been plagued in my Facebook account by this site called iWriter.com. And they make the claim that you can have something written for as little as $1.25. So it's, it's a site where you submit your ideas to a freelance writer. And for as little as $1.25, somebody can produce content for you. And the, the big problem with this is that, besides seeing total impossible, is that my, my business is as a writer. And my writing assignments usually go from somewhere between like $800 to $10,000 for a writing assignment. And that'd be writing a paper, somewhere from a blog to a paper. And I've had writing assignments that were up to $25,000. So obviously, I don't think for $1.25, I can do very much. But what if right now, 
I'm being technologically unemployed? What if this is the future of my job and now I have done? What will I do? Or perhaps I'll have to join iWriter myself as one of their 400,000 writers. Writers get paid 81% of the price of each article. The rest is taken by PayPal transaction fees as well as CopyScape quality checks to ensure the article is unique. This leaves a profit of $1.62 for a 300-word article, $2.43 for the writer for a 500-word article, and $4 and a nickel for a 700-article for the writer. These amounts vary based on the type of writer you are, whether you're a standard, premium, elite. Elite writers can earn $15 for an article. And if you receive a special request from a requester, you receive another 5% earnings per article. And that equates to $3 and a penny for, for a 500-word article. So I'm just completely confused. I can't imagine a single person who would participate in this and I haven't spent the dollar twenty-five to order something, but I'm really tempted to. That's it for me. Thank you so much for your patience on this long podcast. I'm now going to play you my appearance on Singularity Brothers. Again, you can get their podcast on iTunes. Just search Singularity Brothers or Bros B R O S or go to their website, singularitybros.com. It was a great pleasure to be on there. I really hope this we can still be great friends after this podcast uh, with my one one disagreement, and I'm hoping I can go on again. Anyway, highly recommended. I've listened to half of their whole series, and it's been a great departure from the stuff I usually listen to, and I've learned a ton of stuff. So check it out. You're listening to the Singularity Bros Podcast, a podcast about the singularity. Bros, with your hosts, Scott, Tom, and Zach. To find out more, visit our website at singularitybros.com or follow us on Twitter at Singularity Bros. Welcome back to the Singularity Bros Podcast. This is <laughs> episode 32. It's getting a wild eye from Zach there. Um, we are very excited today to have a guest with us who I will let give his own brief uh, biographic details and why he's here with us. But his name is Jeff Till. Welcome to the show, Jeff Till. Uh, hey, guys. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. A big fan of the show. So uh, I'm Jeff Till. I run the podcast and blog 500years.org. I am a wild advocate for home education and peaceful parenting. I am a harsh critic of traditional schooling, and I'm also a business owner and a father of three delightful young children. Awesome. Well, welcome aboard, Jeff. Thanks. When you say wild advocate, like you're you're like a cage-free advocate, grass-fed. Yeah, except it's uh, free children, free-range children over here. Now that that has a specific meaning, right? Uh, like free range parenting. Yeah, it does, and I I, I don't I've, I haven't used that term before, but I I think it probably accurately summarizes uh, what we're about as far as having children, having freedom to learn, and I not having uh, to you know be in a sort of trapped environment where they're they're forced to sit in a desk and be quiet and you know sit and shut up. 
it's kind of hilarious that we've had to come up with a term like free range parenting to describe how all children throughout history have been raised until the eighties, basically. <laughs> yeah. No, and it's, it's weird that you have to sort of be a crazy person to, to think that way. Uh, it's very much, most people uh, who I come in contact with think I'm insane. <laughs> it means you're doing something right. That's, that's yeah. what that means. Because uh, literally only uh, 2 or 3% of families decide to free-range their children growing up. So you, you said you don't typically use that term. So tell us a little bit about um, just sort of the, 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 the basic gist of, of where you're coming from in terms of why traditional schooling, I know this is a huge question to give a basic gist on, but uh, why traditional schooling is, is I guess, bad um, and just sort of what your, what your, uh, your basic outline is for what you're, you're advocating in terms of an alternative. Sure, uh, that, that I can answer that. You know, on a historical perspective, on a personal perspective, or a societal expect, you know, perspective, sure. or a what's good for all children kind of perspective. Uh, from my own my own history, uh, my kids did attend uh, public school for a while, and we sent them in automatically without thinking about it for even five minutes. It was like as soon as my daughter became five and a half, we picked the school that happened to be closest to our house and put her on the bus, and that was it. And I've always been, especially recently, a big fan of doing things that make me happy and avoiding things that don't make me happy. Uh, so I started going through a pretty big transformation where I, I restructured my company so I'd only have to work a few hours a week. I uh, decided to move to South Carolina from Massachusetts because I never wanted to see snow again. Uh, starting starting cutting relationships with people I didn't care for who you know weren't a positive force in my life. And when it came to school, I still, being schooled myself, I still had a really hard time uh, seeing that I could get that part of obligation out of my life and out of my kids' life. Even though we hated getting up, we hated sending them, we hated what they were learning, we hated the homework. Uh, they hated being there. It was tedious. It was boring. It was joyless. Um, so I, I did a huge research effort where I started picking up books by guys like John Taylor Gatto, John Holt, Grace Llewellyn, and others to learn about the history and purpose of, of education. And the more I did that, um, and the more I did first, you know, first-person analysis, either looking at what my kids were doing in school or forcing myself to remember what I went through as a student, um, school just started looking like more, a more and more horrible, tedious, hideous waste of time. And when you look at the history of schooling, it, it can go back to the, the Spartans in ancient Greece where they would take over the parenting job uh, to, to raise the children. Or if you go to, there was that video you sent, Scott, um, where the, the gentleman says the English invented it 300 years ago. Uh, and the story I've heard is that the Prussian Empire developed it about 150 years ago in order to keep soldiers from fleeing battle. So they figured the only way they could keep soldiers obedient, well-trained, and loyal was to take over when they were about five years old and indoctrinate them from there. And it turns out that's if you want to have, if you want to have kids to have bad ideas uh, or people to have bad ideas is you always have to get them as children. So there's every you know ex Muslim extremist or 
fundamental Christian has to be indoctrinated as a child. Otherwise, the ideas just won't stick. Uh, Horace Mann brought that idea over to the United States around the 1850s. And the big sort of Gilded Age uh, capitalists like the Rockefellers and Vanderbilts uh, fully supported and funded him because they saw the oncoming industrial revolution and they desperately needed obedient workers and you know consumers as well, consumer mentality. So you, you wanted people who were completely conditioned to have to get up from an alarm clock, show up at a building at a certain time, do sort of repeatable, uh, repeatable boring task, you know, be told when to go to the bathroom or when to have lunch, continue to do these, you know, repeatable boring tasks until a certain time, then go home and uh, then, you know, basically have no time to think for themselves. And that model just sort of, even though it, it, it was liberalized uh, later, has just been propagated to, you know, to the point where they're still using the same information communication technology that they would have used in 1850, which is the, you know, a person in front of the room talking. Right. You know, the lecture. The chalkboard. And, and so it hasn't, hasn't evolved. All it's done is gotten, you know, the, the hours have expanded. Even when school first started, it was only, you know, a few hours a day and not every day. You know, now it, it very much closely resembles what we consider that factory workday or the office workday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't think that's a, a coincidence. You know, for one, the, the schools have taken over a lot of parental responsibilities, especially since, you know, the 70s or 80s were where moms entered the workforce. And then it also seems to be a training ground for that sort of that, that work mentality that's very obedient, uh, you know, looking to do re- repeatable skills. And then when I, when I looked at it personally, I was like, wow, I remember school and it really sucked. And, uh, you know, it was tedious and I, who, who liked, uh, you know, having to raise your hand to go to the bathroom or, you know, being at, you have to ask permission to get a drink of water, even when you're like 17 years old, uh, the subjects and, and reflection, most of the subject material seemed arbitrary and, and not useful or enjoyable for either later when I would, what I wouldn't work or later when I would have intellectual hobbies, you know, like studying ethics or philosophy or economics or whatever. So the knowledge was neither enjoyable uh, nor useful, and I forgot most of it anyways. And that (laughs) seems to be the, the, almost the cliche, right, is everyone has a joke about a math class they took, you know, that they, you know, forgot everything, you know, the day later, and they never, (laughs) no, they never would use it anyways, you know, so. Yeah, basically memorized everything for that test, and then the second the test was over, forgot it forever. Yeah, exactly. Still going to be now, on that test. <laughs> and now we see that um, that's almost like a meme, you know, if you go to Huffington Post or whatever, or you're on the internet, is that everyone says, wow, we're just really teaching to the test. Uh, we're, we're really piling on the homework. We're really, you know, using the wrong incentives, all these external, uh, extrinsic, you know, motivations and punishments, using fear. Uh, we're helicopter parenting, and then we're even we're sticking them when well, we're not parenting. We're sticking them in latchkey, and we're com- completely eliminating any possibility that people would love to learn. And that's probably the saddest part of it is we we can see, uh, you know, uh, not not just us, but pretty much everybody in the country can see that we're we're hurting the children. We're destroying their their interest in learning new things. We're destroying their interest. You know, they they come out of school hating you know books and knowledge, not loving it. And so it's completely, you know, this, this terrible thing that I saw. And I said, well, well, finally, just for myself, I need to rip my kids out and do something different. And then as a, 
project very much like you guys uh, promote sing the singularity and, and issues, I decided to make it a project in a similar way and started you know, writing my book and, and blogging on it. So that, that's, that's, that's sort of the big story right there. Are, now, is, is the book and the, and the blog and all of the sort of popularizing that you're doing, is that based on some of your own experiences with your own three children? Yeah, so the, the, the book and the blog are more about making this, the decision to do home education, uh, which, which was a part that I found very difficult. So it doesn't actually talk about how to do it, hmm. which there are a lot of books to do. And the, the, the secret is that there really is nothing to it when once you start doing it, if you do use our approach. But I just found that the decision to do it so painful because even though I had a complete intellectual case for doing this where I had read all the books and had done all the sort of soul searching and everything, I still couldn't make the decision to do it because it was just the thing that you're supposed to do. That social conditioning for school is very strong. Yeah, yeah. So, because we we've been through it, and we know that it's how how essential it's you know we're, we're told it's supposed to be, and all your neighbors are doing it. And it wasn't until I started having I had this burst of empathy where I sort of had to de-school myself and get that mentality out. And once once I could put myself in my kids' shoes and say, would I want to go there? Would I want to have my love of learning destroyed? Would I want to? spend you know this 15,000 hours of being largely unhappy I said well no I just I can't do it and so then then all was left it was to uh, convince my wife which was a big project <laughs> and we finally did it did you have to use powerpoint to convince her <laughs> uh, there oh, there was a, there was a uh, she had to do a lot of reading as well <laughs> okay and she was nervous and her parents like still chew us out oh i can imagine yeah just they're just terrified that we're going to raise these these uh unschooled dummies when when in fact i thought the risk was greater before and um so yeah no she 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 came along too and and it was faster than me but i i had my arguments pretty well put out there so two episodes ago we talked about education with um dr dan saunders who is a college professor and i was sort of pushing back against the idea of formal education being a necessity anymore and he was sort of um throwing me a lot of curveballs really awesomely but just it sort of made me think that i think the reasons we will want to educate our children are rapidly changing whereas this model you've described where we're creating kind of cogs in a repetitive assembly line um made sense i think for a long time those were the jobs that were available and if you came out of high school and you went to work in a mill or you know in some manufacturing job you were perfectly placed to do that because of that schooling system even things like creating armies that won't run away that's really valuable if you have a militaristic country but if our goals for what we want our children to be are changing because either those sort of monotonous manufacturing jobs no longer exist or we're not uh, like a, a country or a society based around our military, our goals for how we educate our children should change. And I think we're seeing those kind of society um, reshaping changes happening right now. And I think education takes a while to catch up. So we're still kind of, like you said, educating children for a model that is decades if not centuries old but i guess my question for both you and dan in spirit would be what do we want of our children 
if we're educating them at home or, or even if we just radically overhaul how schooling is done, what is it, what are the outcomes that we want our children to have other than to just not be depressed, which I think is a, an excellent goal in its, its own right. School is super boring and I hated the shit out of it. And I think we all did, but, um, here, here. if like, if we wanted to craft an, an education system, what, what do we want to see at the end of that? Sure. Um, I'm going to, uh, I don't, I don't personally want to craft a, an education, a one size fits all education system at all. I, you know, I don't think there should be a curriculum for all 30 million children that goes at the same space. I wouldn't want one for 30 children in the same room. And really, if, if we gave me two different children, I wouldn't necessarily want to recommend the same approach for each one of them. You know, I, I think in our age and what we're looking at, we need people who um, don't necessarily have a canned set of answers, which is sort of how what we teach now. But we need people who can search and learn and uh, question. I mean, that's that's sort of how computing works now is we we don't come as humans with the answers and sit down to Google to find questions. It's the other way around. We have questions, we have needs for knowledge, and then we go and we learn. And we also have to have people who love learning and know how to do it, know how to actually learn with intrinsic motivation. And then I'm guessing we also need people who operate in you know the technology of the age at the bare minimum so at the public schools they they currently do a half hour a week called technology even though as people nowadays we don't actually do technology for some fixed part of the day it's just you know it's it's in everything we do it like so underpins uh the entirety of the day you know whether it's through through on the phone or the computer or if it's going to eventually be on our our vr machines or whatever uh we probably also need people who don't take occup- occupational identity, which is a, a big part of schooling, is from the, the first moment you enter, you're sort of asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. That drives you. They say, you know, if you don't finish the school and get good grades, you're never going to get a good job. And then the first day you go to college when you're 18, they say, what's your major? And it's usually an occupational-based major. And then you go into the workforce and you try to find a job there. And then you go to a cocktail party. And the first thing people ask you is, what, you know, what do you do for a living? Like, that's who you are. You know, and then when people get fired or when people, you know, have to find new work because the workforce change, you know, one day Uber doesn't exist and there's no jobs there, then it does exist. And there's a bunch of jobs there and you change. And then, then, you know, two days later, they introduce the driverless cars and now you're out of work again. Um, So you can't really tie large sections of your identity necessarily to what you do to pay the bills, I think. I couldn't agree with that more. And I I read a piece you wrote about that and and found myself, you know, agreeing strongly and also laughing to myself just because of how, uh, what's your major was the cliche <laughs> line for <laughs> all of undergrad. You know, that's just that I, I never really got to the, what do you do as much as the, what's your major? That was, that was the go-to. Yeah. But, um, yeah. And it's sort of saying like, what, what, what identity are you going to tie yourself down to for the rest of your life? Right. In a way. Or in my case, I didn't really give a shit at all what their major was, but <laughs> just yeah. excited to talk to someone. Foot in the door. Right. The other thing is um, school teaches a lot of dependency and obedience, and I think that probably worked well, as, as you were saying, like in the military, or if you joined you know, the big corporation, you joined uh, Pitney Bowes or IBM or something, and you were a company man for your whole life. And you sort of expect your whole workday to be handed to you. Mm-hmm. You know, here, here's 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 your task that you have to do. Here's the spreadsheet you have to fill out. Here's your lunch break. 
and then at five o'clock you go home. And probably the modern worker or the the modern person is gonna you know they're gonna be working from anywhere from anywhere on different timescales. And I'm hoping, and this goes sort of to the singularity topics, is that in the future, um, people won't have this monolithic view of a job as something that you know begins at nine and ends at five and has to last for five days a week. Right. Because I, I would like to see people start to, start to decouple the idea of time and money, and uh, where where people realize they might value, especially as as they they might have to consume less in the future. Um, they might say, well, I only want to work 20 hours a week and there's only 20 hours a week available to me. So I'm going to change my life so that I, I enjoy those extra 20 hours I get. Uh, I would hope more parents would spend more time with their children instead of shipping them off, you know, between seven and 11 hours a day. A lot of families, you can barely figure out why they had kids because it's like, you know, you, you shake them to wake up, you know, wake up, eat your breakfast, get in the car, you know, go on the bus you know, then you drive them to soccer practice and then you have to yell at them to do their homework and then you feed them and then you tell them to go to bed and shut up. And, you know, then you go golfing <laughs> on Saturday. And it's like, boy, you know, why did you have these kids that you weren't even going to pretend to enjoy or right. nurture? You know, that you were just going to continually delegate their, their caring uh, elsewhere. So I, I would like to think that we would want kids to appreciate appreciate time and also not expect to be given... Uh, everything in a controlled sequence like they would have traditionally seen in a factory or even in a traditional career job, you know, office job as we see see it now. Instead, they'll be having to change around a lot, do smaller parcels of work, I'm guessing, and be more autonomous. Have you guys does, does that sound? It sounds, I mean, it, it sounds, I, I, I find myself having difficulty like disagreeing with any of that, Jeff, but yeah. what kind of pushback uh, type of arguments have you gotten from people on this? Because I mean, the, the one thing that I immediately start thinking is the the conversation that you seem to be having, it, it sounds like it's a lot bigger than just the education system. Yeah, it could be. I mean, it's, although the, the education, the schooling is a gargantuan part of a child's life. You know, again, it's 15,000 hours, it's 13 years. It's take, it takes them right when they hit latency all the way through nearly the end of puberty. So it's, it's a really hard thing to uh, not include, of course. And what's really a lot of it what's going on is, is, you know, it's the training of children to constantly, you know, desire authority uh, to be permission seekers for everything instead of uh, people who make their own permission and for people to sort of eschew critical thinking and a love of learning again. So, you know, I, I think those are some of the, the that school is the enemy of the, a lot of those things. And even when you're saying what kind of outcomes do we desire, really, I, I don't have specific outcomes I want. I, what I just listed were all good things. But what I really want is my kids to be happy and to follow what they want. And so there's, it's hard to imagine a system, whether it's one size fits all or if it's 10 different ones, that's going to deliver that to children. You know, you almost have to just give children their, their freedom and, 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 and give them encouragement. And that's about as, as much system as, as I would care to put in. Yes. I mean, I guess I think my questions, maybe it's just my questions go beyond mm -hmm. the, the education system. I, th I think the three of us over here totally agree that our, 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 our individual schooling experiences were on the majority pretty fucking miserable. Crap. Um, 
but mm-hmm. you know, I, the, the best parts of it obviously were the social relationships that, uh, well, for me anyways, are the social relationships that I built still have a lot of those friends. Um, I don't know how much of the actual education I remember. I feel like my education started in some ways after I graduated college and decided to start learning some of my own interests. Um, isn't that just, can I just interrupt for a second? Sure, like, course, isn't isn't that amazing? The yeah. Oh, it's just ludicrous. Yeah. For information you, you three have and your, your audience all has the same, you know, everyone's actually desperate and horny for learning and information. <laughs> and yeah, um, most of us start until we're about like 28 years old or something. Right. It's, so, and I, I think I think you the the type of education that you seem to be advocating here, this sort of like letting the children learn what they want to do and fostering a sense of critical thinking and exploration that we do sort of kill at a pretty early age in the system that we have now um, is going to be important in the future if we extrapolate out from some of the changes we've seen here over the past 15 years and the unemployment levels of kids that are coming out of high school and college, mm-hmm. the fact that they can't find jobs and that things are changing. There, I mean, I, I guess in, in, in a way you are preparing your children for a more uncertain future. Yeah, I like to think so, yeah. So, you know, that's a good way to put that, Tom. Just uh, and that was kind of what I was trying to get at before where at, at, you know, creating cogs in a machine when you were certain that that machine was going to be there mm-hmm. might not have been the worst idea. But now that everything seems very uncertain, it could be, you know, you, this singularity utopia that we love to hope and wish for, fingers crossed, or it could be some other terror escape that we're not sure. Either way, you can't I think it, it's unwise to start planning a child's education at kindergarten for some job that likely won't exist in 12 years. Yeah, and I, I think there's some very alarming figures out there about just what percent of the jobs people are being trained for or kind of pre-trained for uh, are likely to exist or are at risk of automation. Um, but t- talking about some of these kind of... Um, interconnected issues and wider issues. I just want to go back to the idea of identity for a second. Um, Cause I do think this is a, a big part of what's holding up progress on a lot of fronts, especially where we kind of have the material resources required. We just don't, we kind of have a value impediment and uh, I, I watch real time on HBO and this past week, Barney Frank was on and he was talking about a, a uh, a program that I think is kin to basic income, which is unemployment insurance. And they were talking about it for coal miners and how it's just, it's a fantasy to think that you're going to retrain a lot of coal miners, especially older ones to be, you know, to have jobs in, in green energy sector. And what we really need is like, you know, one huge impediment of kind of uh, damaging that industry, which we might actually be on ethical ground in doing, uh, is the the uh, employment uh, impact. You know, like we're going to slash jobs, we're going to destroy jobs. And that happens everywhere. I mean, it happens in military, it happens in infrastructure. There are a lot of kind of programs running that aren't necessarily contributing to public welfare to the to the public good but they're essentially jobs programs and 
rather than just paying people to not do those shitty jobs that aren't really helping anyone. We are destroying the planet potentially. Right. Yeah. Not only are they not helping in, in some cases you could make the, uh, you know, argument that they're harming everyone. Um, yeah. Like the, uh, the F what's it? The F 30 plane that, that procures uh, parts from every state. Yeah. Yeah. But if it did, you know, it would just kill people in mass. (laughs) Yeah, right. yeah. It's, it's a machine made to murder people. So. Right, and it's it's better that we never use it, and even that is a, a grotesque waste of, of money and manpower. But that that idea of identity, you know, a lot of people are just, like, they don't, they're so afraid of not being that thing anymore. Like, but I'm a minor, but I'm a this, I'm a that. And I, I find it hard to imagine shifting away from, you know, finding kind of exits, exits out of the identity trap without some supporting kind of infrastructure socially or like value infrastructure. Like we would need unemployment insurance. We would need something to cushion their fall when they decide, okay, like I, I I'm going to not be, cause I think it's, they're still going to deal with that identity turmoil, that psychological turmoil, but it's especially injurious when they also have to face an uncertain future about, you know, how they're going to make ends meet. Yeah. It's a double kick in the face. And that was in that piece I wrote that I sent on is, is, you know, not only are you losing your means to a, to your meal, but you're being told that you're not who you are anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, any, any like older generation of coal miner is probably, you know, he, he's, he's past the, the, the identity salvaging point. You know, there's, um, you know, since this thing was installed in school when people were children, it's going to be very hard to reverse it without actually, you know, stop, you know, stop doing it to future children, in my opinion. So I, I was just kind of wondering what other, like, I, I think of it as, um, like, we might need a kind of multi-pronged approach here to start to uh dissolve the identity trap like what what other things do we need because it's hard for me to see it be to rest that entirely on schooling or homeschooling although i do think you know the case you make that the problem starting in youth is is one of the the worst elements of it yeah just just as a caveat there it's very unfortunate that homeschooling uh is sort of like the only alternative there is uh to traditional schooling. I mean, the since 90, 90% of kids go to public school, uh, 7% go to private school, and everybody pays property tax. And and so the, the market, market's been pretty sucked out for alternatives to school, uh, whether it would be something like uh, Montessori uh, for all for all ages, Sudbury school models, uh, more, you know, more digital options that might be, you know, at home and in a building you know, sort of a, a apprenticeship. You know, there's probably a thousand different things that could be education that just don't exist today. And so now we have this weird false dichotomy between, uh, you know, homeschooling, which is mostly thought of, uh, you know, as Christians, you know, showing pictures of Jesus and dinosaurs <laughs> and being friends. You mean accurate history? <laughs> science. We're talking about science. Yeah, science. I'm talking about science. And... Uh, you know, those are the crazy people. And it's true because I'm in the homeschooling community and you have to be, you know, there's the Christians, there's the hippies and there's the anarchist. 
And all, all of them had their minds sort of explode at one point, you know, and go, ah, you know, I just, you know, kids come here because they have to school. <laughs> but not until the idea that we want to move away from the factory model of schooling can we slowly, you know, begin giving these other, other, other options. And, and really education uh, is a lifelong, as, as, we, as the four of us know, is a lifelong endeavor. Uh, so it's, it'd be neat to think of if, you know, there was a thousand different types of education that we could eventually, that weren't sort of all this, you know, identity-based uh, factory nonsense that people of all ages, uh, you know, uh, up and above whether we, we cover their food or not, get to go to, um, you know, learn. Mm-hmm. So you, you could feasibly be a 55-year-old coal miner and actually have some channels to learn. You know, especially maybe if you needed some help getting through some of your other problems. You know, you probably would have to have need a therapist as much as you'd need an educator. But right. it, it would be kind of neat to open the education market to the, the entire age span, to everybody. So just now, real of course, quick. Of course, most people hate, still just hate education because they, they conflate it with what they experienced in public school. Exactly. I, I just, I'm curious as to... Uh, if you had researched any of those, I mean, you're clearly familiar with some of these other options, but, you know, did, did you look at Montessori? Did you look at Sudbury? Like, flipped classroom is, like, another kind of not, not common but kind of currently trending uh, model. I mean, were you looking um, still for a kind of third-party education before you decided to homeschool and... Uh, if you had looked at any of those, why did you think homeschooling was the best of, of all possible options? I, I didn't. I didn't uh, look into it too much. Uh, Montessori schools, in general, are um, only for, are, are typically while, while they have them for all the way up to twelfth grade. In in most areas, they they only go up to like third grade, or just they might just do preschool. Um, Montessori is still is still a bit restrictive. It's all it's still uh, a big part. I also don't like about schooling is that it's compulsory. I think that's another thing that you have to take out. Uh, there's no option to show up for school just like three days a week. You're either signed up and you have to go, you know, every single minute and do every single assignment, uh, or that's it. Um, and compulsory and private schools still fall into uh, privacy and yeah, Montessori still fall into that compulsory uh, model where you drop your kids off for a set amount of time that the the state um, establishes. The Sudbury schools are very rare. I don't know. Are you guys familiar with the Sudbury school model? Yes, but the listeners probably aren't. Uh, okay. The Sudbury school is essentially, uh, was started in Sudbury, Massachusetts, and they have this this sort of large facility, which is an old, I think it's an old farmhouse with a, with a, a, a barn and stables and a pond and everything. And the kids show up there, and unlike Montessori, where they have specific tasks that you can choose to do, in the Sudbury School, you just do whatever you want to. So if you want to go fishing for, for a whole year, then that's what you do. And you just decide what you want to learn. And there's people there who will help you. So like if you're like suddenly into you know Egyptian history, they'll help you uh, find it on the computer or find a book on it. But they're not, they're not there doing uh, active participation. And what it essentially is, is it's sort of a, uh, a legalized, schooled version of unschooling. And unschooling is what our family practices, which is you let the kids essentially do whatever they want. And when they do find interest, you encourage them and you, you support them. Uh, for, my example, for example, my, my daughter wanted to learn Japanese, so we, we got her some books and uh, found her an online tutorial and stuff like that. 
Uh, but you don't actually dictate a curriculum. You, you let them be completely independent and let their, whatever they like to do, uh, follow, you know, let their passion sort of make their education for them. And that some sounded the, the best to me in the end. So that's, that's why we chose homeschooling. Sounds like uh, some of the values that maybe just naturally are emerging, at least insofar as the values we don't want to instill in our children anymore are, are things like we want children to, or, you know, adult humans also, um, not to derive their identity from work and kind of the outside world in general, to have either not so much invested in their own, like, egoic identity, or to have, like, a flexible one, or to have one that's firmly internal, like, you know, someone knows who they are, and the job doesn't particularly matter. Yeah, intrinsic, uh, intrinsic motivations, instead of these external, uh, punishments and you know carrots and sticks you know punishments and, and rewards and we also want people to be nimble and to be able to if you know their coal mine gets shut down they are able they have the ability to learn and that's not like a, that's not a foreign concept they could go learn a new task or they've been learning the whole time just a, a general love of learning which i think school beats out of you so I, I feel like those might be things to, I agree there's probably not a one size fits all and that's maybe the beauty of the information society that we live in. There, This might be the best time ever for homeschooling because of the resources available on the internet. You can, and more every day, you can find so much and even find places where they teach you those things. And it's not just, here's a list of things like Khan Academy where you can basically have an online tutor and I feel like those are going to get more plentiful um, over time but it, it does seem like there is a kind of natural set of I don't know not morals but attitudes that are emerging mm -hmm. yeah well there's there, another thing just to add on to that is that there's no more gatekeepers to information right and anyone you know at, who would say so you know can be laughed out of the building so I, 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 I am going to listen to your college professor uh, interview, but I think the university is the same way. I, you know, I, I don't think there's a professor at any college who owns the information that they share. Right. Well, he, he, uh, I think he would agree with all of us here saying that there, there are no gatekeepers to information, but in terms of credentials, there still are. And that, that's a lot of what we got into with him, where you, know, you could mm -hmm. take it upon yourself to learn a lot of things and really even become qualified in a lot of things but the structures as they exist today in a especially with their kind of self-perpetuating mo need to hold the the keys to those doors so yeah if you learned uh you know advanced math on khan academy you still would have to at some point do some kind of transaction with with these parties to be recognized and potentially have, you know, the doors open to various employment opportunities or what have you. So, I mean, again, I think this is, I, I think the sun is setting on that day, but there's a painful transition that we're still experiencing right now, where even if you, you're industrious enough, you're ambitious and you know, you, you do the work, you just don't, if you don't do it in the prescribed, um, kind of approved way then you don't really get credit for it yeah that's called that's called the signal 
the um, yeah, a degree is a signal to employers mm-hmm. uh, that says that you've you've supposedly that you've done the work, but that that signal is is getting weaker and weaker uh, as more and more people get degrees and more of them are being produced uh, without you know that that aren't particularly skilled or have you know have lack either that or they have lackluster knowledge and you know coming out of college. And then you're also looking at people whose first major financial decision they made was to put themselves, you know, $100,000 into debt. Ding, ding, ding. (laughs) Which is like, am I going to hire someone at my company um, whose first big financial decision was to, you know, totally, you know, step on their own dick? You know, it just doesn't make a a sense. Gotcha, boss. At least they had a huge dick. Well, I think in some ways it might make sense because then you know they need that job. Yeah, we'll so see. I'm a you, slave at that point, right? Exactly. Not like a, a a great fun collaborative. No, yeah. So if but if you just wanted an employee that you could exploit the shit out of, which I think historically has been what employers desire, then if they're deeply in debt, that's that's got to be in the plus column. Yeah. at that point it's sort you, of I, is, I would think like you know like google and sorry to talk over you just for us no, no, you know companies like you know uh google or uh you know facebook are probably looking for collaborative young you know fun imaginative you know people not 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 just um you know backs you know backs they can explode right yeah i i was recently, it, would you think that's true i i think so i i think it's you know there's a kind of short-sighted logic to just bleeding the worker dry. I was, uh, but I, you know, I think now data are emerging about how much more you get out of a worker if you don't make his life a living hell. Um, I was recently introduced to this guy, not personally, but just as a figure in the world, Ricardo Semler, who's this kind of Brazilian uh, billionaire um, industrialist, whatever. Uh, I think he made his money in the hotel business, but he kind of... Uh, did you say Ricardo Millar? Millar? Semler. Oh, okay. Never mind then. Okay. So he um, he was like, I guess, uh, miserable at work and kind of went back to first principles. And he's done these kind of like, you know, he lets workers come in whenever they want. He He gives kind of people in their first year uh, unbelievable latitude to kind of like do work if they want or not kind of shadow things and just kind of roam around like in this kind of free association period. And um, Hmm. he's been wildly successful in, you know, getting more out of his workers by demanding less of them. And I, I think part of that is he, you know, he attracts and retains workers who are, healthy and they they actually do want a kind of work-life balance that isn't so crushing so uh yeah i, I think to that point i mean mm-hmm. I, I think both of these these kind of forces are at work in the world there's the the traditional model which zach was just talking about and and uh our friend dan kind of um explicated at length for us last week where you know the the model has been to get the most out of the worker and there's now the new alternative emerging that seems counterintuitive, but when you uh, see it work, there's a kind of resonance to it. Oh yeah, if we don't 
make a person want to die, then they'll they'll maybe reward us. Yeah. Well, that's see, that's that's the primary, in my my opinion, the primary lesson of school is is how to train to be miserable for forty hours a week, because, <laughs> and you know that's what that's what parents and teachers say, like, oh, you think it's hard now. Just wait till we get out in the real world. <laughs> then it's right, really going to suck. Right. I just had flashbacks there. <laughs> right? I mean, that's... Yeah. Uh, you didn't come here to socialize. Remember parents telling oh, yeah. me, this, like, these are the best days. And I was like, these are the best days? <laughs> that's, that's really <laughs> awful, uh, awful thing to hear when you're like at your lowest, too. And you're like, oh, my God, what if I just have to go to school forever? And like, this is the best it gets. <laughs> so, yeah, just- How did you guys make out in middle school? Was that fun? Not good. Not yeah, I remember that just being probably the worst part of school. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think middle school was the worst. Yeah, I think me. once, once I, puberty hits, it's yeah. I think that had a lot to do with it. Where, like, how in the world am I supposed to concentrate on anything other than just how crushingly sad I am? <laughs> and like, <laughs> I think I just got my like, ass I don't kicked know. a lot in grade school. Did you? Yeah. That's why you're. That's why you're a big tough guy now. I know. I'm super strong and, and very, very <laughs> martially talented. <laughs> so, Jeff, I not to, um, you know, I don't mean any offense by this, but you, you sound like kind of a smart guy. And uh, so, the idea of you spending time with your children and kind of guiding or fostering their their autodidactic instincts doesn't fill me with alarm or dread the way it might for uh, 99 out of 100 people. Maybe that's that's un- mm-hmm. unnecessarily mean-spirited and kind of uh, a cynical view of people. But the I just I, I do worry about this as a kind of scalable model um, where you know c- could you really trust so many, families parents to kind of guide or support their their children's learning or self-learning and i i I remember seeing i believe i I encountered this first in malcolm gladwell's book blink but I've, i've seen this comparison of american schooling to certain other countries i believe especially uh some of the um like high scoring asian countries like korea and singapore where they they go to school longer days and more days in the year, and here there's a a real education disparity that goes along with income inequality because kids who come in, who are in primary who are in public school typically do as well as you know they do as well early on in school regardless of the family's wealth, but then. Mm-hmm summer vacation comes and the kids at the higher end of the wealth spectrum, they have books, they may have tutors, their, their parents can afford help or they can afford you go to they, summer camp. Right. There's, there's yeah. a continuity of development. Whereas for a lot of the kids at the lower end of the wealth spectrum, they just like all of their education kind of falls to, uh, falls apart during the summer they come back and those disparities start to get more pronounced as the years go on so i i wonder if this model you know can be replicated for everyone yeah well again um i i bemoan that it's either homeschool or public school or nothing 
if, if you're look if you're to look at the the the, the sort of performance of low-income areas, you know, if you were to take go to the inner city of Baltimore, for example, uh, where they're actually spending about twenty thousand dollars per child per year, wow. and you know, kids kids are graduating. I mean, that's that means they're investing what was that a quarter million dollars in each kid, uh, you know, and a lot of them, you know, and, and they're famously graduating as you know either um, illiterate, uh, part of it's a factory for prisoners and soldiers. Mm-hmm. And the, the results that are happening in school are pretty awful. And it's pretty uh, easy to imagine that if you were to suddenly shutter those schools and send these kids to their homes where they don't have dads, uh, and, you know, maybe they have a mother. I'm, I'm doing stereotypes. I, I apologize. But, um, you know, a, a mother that, that, that probably might be illiterate herself and is only 19 or whatever. A product of that same school? Yeah. Uh, so you know, we're, we're kind of in a tough place there because we're we're doing the the city or whoever you want to blame is is already doing a pretty good job of making institutional generational poor partly through schooling. Um, you know, and then are they going to flourish as you know instantly become free thinkers and you know nimble nimble intellectuals if we just send them home? And you know, the answer is no. But if we did find some other alternatives, if we were, if 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 more of the, if if rich people had you know experimented experimented more with different educational models, it'd be much easier to make them available to to poorer people, uh, or even to parents who are are well intentioned but aren't particularly good at encouraging children. So a does, kind of default, does that make sense? So I think so. But I, then I, I I take a kind of bottom or baseline version of your argument to be that no matter how unsavory that outcome is, given that schools are spending an incredible amount of money currently and producing already dismal results, it couldn't be worse. <laughs> yeah, they could. I mean, they could. Here's a couple ideas. One, if it, probably if you just gave that family the 250 grand in, right. uh, in cash Amen. instead of uh, sending them to school and say you figured out. You know, even even if they blew it, you probably the kid probably still would have had to participate in some commerce, you know, along the way, and and probably would be more hireable, or would even just be able to move across town to where there was where the rich kids went to school. The that that video of uh, the Indian gentleman, Sujata Mitra. Said, yeah, so he you know he did his exp- I've, I've heard of him before. That was that was actually a really interesting watch. Uh, but you know he was showing some very inexpensive options that people could have sort of a Sudbury school experience. You know, you're literally just talking about a maintained building, you know, with a couple people to make sure, you know, just to keep the bullies in line and some computers. So that's not 20,000 a year. But again, we don't know, we don't actually know which, which the best one is for every, the best option for everybody. And, you know, we don't know what the best option is to have everybody thrive at this point. If I might get weird for a second, if you guys don't mind, um, this has like just inspired in my head a, vision of a potential future where money is no longer an issue because we have full technological unemployment in a way that we've embraced everybody has their basic needs met um jobs are no longer an issue because like i said all our basic needs are met we have all the food we need all the the toil is done by robots we still work in some sense for like edifying ways and you know ways that we can 
give to other people or study and do things. And that changes that model of education too. And how weird and amazing of a world it would be if basically from birth and onward, you were just encouraged to go explore whatever you wanted for the rest of your life without like, you better buckle down or you're going to die of starvation. Um, and you have the universe's knowledge at your fingertips through the internet. I feel like this is not that impossible of a future and something we talk about a lot here, but I hadn't really thought about it from the perspective of educating young people where, you know, at eight years old, you could basically just loose a child into the world and it goes, I want to stop in at this place today and learn a thing or like, I'm going to go to uh, some other school that just happens to exist along my place in the world um, and without any pressure to, to ever conform or to meet some sort of standard. I think s children would still educate or desire knowledge to some degree, but I, I could see the, the future going in a way. I mean, I would hope so, that it would go in a, in a way like this. Yeah, but you know what also happens, to add on to your, um, to your story, is for a lot of us, there comes a point where you feel like you're not only at a point where you've learned a lot, but you're ready to start putting knowledge back into the community. Mm -hmm. And you're like, uh, you know, and it's, it's sometimes it's through, just through the organization and synthesis of a bunch of other knowledge that you redirect. And sometimes it's uh, taking some kind of field theory and building on it because you have some more wrinkles that, that no one else has discovered. And then all of a sudden, the this society you're describing is, is not just endlessly learning, but they're endlessly creating as well. And I think uh, which, which has to happen, right? Because right? don't really no no one wants a utopia because in a utopia nothing ever gets better. So, <laughs> you know, this vision, you know, would would keep on pushing, you know, pushing the the pursuit, the consumption, and the development of knowledge, you know, continually. And I think one of the things that I I, I and at least on this train of thought that excites me is the the potential for virtual reality to be just a wonderful educational tool. Definitely, Absolutely. Definitely one of the stronger like ones. Yeah, like, like what's the experience of a book compared to, you know, virtually experiencing something for real? As long as people keep reading, because reading is important, kids. Buy some books. <laughs> if you have another minute, I'd, I'd like to ask about peaceful parenting. Oh, sure. Uh, peaceful parenting is, is sort of a, a, a loosely coined approach or philosophy to parenting where you try to eliminate the use of top-down authority between parent and child as much as you possibly can so and treat the child with respect so so at the very top is is you don't hit or spank your children as a means of of driving behavior because that's um just like you wouldn't necessarily hit your spouse or your girlfriend or your mom to get them to do something and just because children are smaller and you have an extreme power differential over them doesn't mean we should use physical force uh, it also means don't, as much as you can, don't don't threaten with punishments and other, you know, sort of extrinsic motivations, uh, such as, you know, uh, taking things away from them, you know, telling them to sit down and shut up, telling them to do things because that's what I told you to do. Um, it's usually a lot more through negotiation and explaining why you want things and having them understand things in a peaceful way. So it's... Um, now, don't, you know, put your coat on or I'm going to, you know, because I told you so. It's, uh, listen, it's cold outside. You're going to want your coat later. And then you have a discussion about it. So it's it's trying to transform the, the notion of authority 
between parent and child because eventually once kids get kind of get bigger to the point where you you can't physically force them uh parents usually have to switch their tactics to use guilt once they can't use the the physical force or the or the physical intimidation and then you know then kids start finding their parents annoying and there's no relationship built this sounds similar to another uh philosophy that i know very little about but it's called taking children seriously are you familiar with that? That's David Deutsch, right? Yeah, that's really the I, only thing I know about it. And we're, we're I big, haven't heard about it, no. We're big David Deutsch fans here, but that that's kind of the thing I think we're least familiar with is his, his parenting philosophies. I will say that it sounds like that's how Elon Musk was raised. And if you read the incredible Wait But Why four-part series on Elon Musk, in the fourth part, it, it talks about how he was raised. Um, they call it the chained why, where children are like, why, 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 why? and they keep going and he was constantly encouraged for his curiosity and wasn't punished and as a result it's not that he's so much smarter than everybody which of course he is but he also <laughs> is will look at things and won't just take people's word for it so if someone says you can't build a rocket for that cheap he actually tries to figure out if that's true instead of just taking whatever the authority's word for it is and they you know in this series it talks about that some of his upbringing is the reason why he um is willing to go to first principles on so many problems and finds solutions that people just didn't know to look for mm -hmm. yeah no it's, it sounds like magic or something but it, it um it makes so much sense that you'd want to during your most developmental and helpless years that you would at least want the same respect that you know we we would want to have for ourselves and to have people who try to make us happy and treated us with respect and didn't make us do things that were awful. This <laughs> it, it, is going to be like stuff they talk about in the future, you know, like when we hear about um, slavery or, uh, you know, when they, you know, would, you know, make, make the slaves build the pyramids and starve them or whatever horrible history thing. I'm, I'm hoping that the idea that we sent kids to school and uh, hit them is, is some kind of horrible thing from humanity's past. I don't think you're wrong. I think that's true. And I especially, you know, I now find that 15,000 hour figure very arresting because I'm, I'm fond of this uh, organization, 80,000 hours, which is a effective... William McCaskill's thingy? Yeah, it's an effective altruist's yeah. um, kind of career or, uh, guidance organization where they you know they and the, the the name of it comes from the the estimation that you'll have about 80,000 hours in your career and when you think about you know how much time that is you want to maximize the kind of good you you can do with that time but 15,000 hours in school I mean you're losing nearly 20 percent of your your lifetime output to oftentimes come out with nothing to show for it other than a distrust for adults yeah 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 we didn't even we didn't even talk about that it's another another great point well i guess we'll just have to talk about it the next time we talk um so i guess at this point we'll move to uh the media mentions portion of the show uh if that's cool with everybody Sounds good. All right. Jeff, we typically let the guest kind of uh, 
lay out what they're reading or what they think we and the listeners should read before we get into our stupid minutiae or what they're writing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so I, I, of course I got to start with uh, the book I just I just published called Rise Above School. You can put it into Amazon and buy it there on Kindle or in hard copy. So Rise Above School. Uh, on the topics of schooling, uh, anything by John Taylor Gatto is will really blow your hair back. Uh, he's one of my favorite authors. He's he's a re, uh, retired school teacher of 20 years, was elected twice as teacher of the year in New York State, and then finally grandly resigned, saying that he refuses to hurt children anymore. Mm-hmm. And he's done tr- tremendous uh, research on the function of school, both through history and what it does now. Um, and it, it'll make your skin crawl. Uh, my, my two favorite books are Dumbing Us Down and weapons of mass instruction uh he's also got there's an interview a five-hour interview with him on youtube called the ultimate history lesson and uh that's a great watch as well and you'll go into a lot of different places you'll go into the trivium and the quadrivium and learning methods and the history of nazis and all sorts of cool stuff that i'll have to do with school and then lastly i'm a big fan of the school sucks project which is brett vinat's project which is uh, an examination of modern-day schooling and techniques on how to become a better learner, productivity, and other neat stuff. He, he puts together a really neat show. Awesome. We will, so that's uh, my list. We'll put all that in the show notes so folks can get access to it uh, after they listen to this program. Cool. Um, I guess I'll go first because um, I have a voice. Uh, I watched this... This is totally unrelated to anything we've talked about tonight, but uh, I watched this YouTube uh, documentary called Barbaric Gentleman um, about a journalist that decides to take a MMA fight, having zero MMA oh. experience um, and really not being in the best shape. Like he had run some like ultra marathons, which is no small thing. But that skill set is pretty radically different from uh, the martial arts skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, it's awesome. Conor McGregor's featured in it. Um, oh, God, I can't remember his name here. Uh, John Donaher's in there. Uh, the guy's trainer is Owen Roddy. Uh, so it's, John Donaher, the jiu-jitsu guy, not the John, I'm sorry, not, I'm not, John, not John Donaher, John Cavanaugh, uh, Conor McGregor's coach from Ireland. I see. Um, awesome kind of hour-long view so if you're into the martial arts uh or anything like that uh it's definitely worth the watch uh also read a great article in harper's magazine on uh legalizing drugs um in the united states it's it's sort of they use all of they use portugal as kind of a model and um they talk about some of the things that's wrong with what's happened over there but how everything is mostly right and what they've done and what we could do in the united states and the examples that have been set in uh colorado and washington and what the future might look like and um but it's really excellent it's sort of caused this row on social media because he talked to uh one of nixon's policymakers, I think it was somebody pretty high up in the Nixon administration when the war on drugs started, 
And this guy was kind of defamed during Watergate and I think was like just working in a sales office when he was interviewed for the piece. And he said some pretty radical things about why they started the war on drugs. And it was basically just to infiltrate the anti-war groups and to demonize black people. Uh, so it worked. Um, but uh, the article was great and I would highly recommend it. I can't remember what it's title is but it was written by uh last name b-a-u-m and we'll throw that in the show notes too so those are my two media mentions for the week cool scott okay um i'm trying to see if i could find that real legalize it all that's like dan bomb perfect um i watched a great talk on youtube that was published late last year also, we were just talking about 80,000 hours. This is uh, a talk on effective altruism, and it's called Effective Altruism, A Better Way to Lead an Ethical Life. And it's sort of staged as one of those debates. It's got Will McCaskill, and then the the counter voice is this priest, Giles Frazier. But what's so wonderfully British about this thing is that uh, <laughs> Frazier is just like, well, you know, I hate arguing with this guy because he's a saint and I agree with 90% of what he says. <laughs> and, and then his, his quibbles are all actually really well put. And um, one of the most remarkable things in here is how much McCaskill actually bites the bullet on some of the more kind of crazy um, thought experiment kind of extrapolations of his theory so Frazier at one point asks him given how much it costs to save a life if you could run into a burning building you 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 have a a burning building and in it there's a, a child and there's a Picasso would you save the Picasso knowing that you could turn that into you know a a very large sum and buy uh, mosquito bed nets and save, you know, X many people. McCaskill says he, he basically bites the bullet on it. And I, I, I love him for that. You know, he, he says this looks really weird, but that's kind of the point of this analysis. We live in a very weird world where there are all these counterintuitive things that upon sufficient scrutiny we, we find are not moral in the way that we think they are. And then what really needs to kind of be addressed or examined there is not that you would save the Picasso, but that like we live in a world where the Picasso could save more lives than the life being saved. Right. Yeah. Right. So it, it was, it was a really good. And then Frazier's uh, reply to that is actually very well thought out too. talk, just talking about the kind of, PR you would get from it and whether you could build an actual movement that way. And, you know, they, there's just a lot of thoughtful agreement there that I I really liked. And it's just a great model, not the kind of bickering, um, you know, saying the straw manning of the other person's point and just trying to kind of have, you know, a a trading of barbs. It's a good stuff. And I'll definitely happily link to it. Yeah, just I wanted to. Um, I, I love. I absolutely love uh, those ethical lifeboat scenario questions. Uh, like, if you've ever read much Sam Harris, he's like the master of uh, putting those together. But all, all, they're all often 
you know, so much fun philosophical exercises that sometimes we forget to look at the big dumb dumb stuff we might be doing. <laughs> um, you know, like uh, uh, <laughs> you know, like the, I think that the, the U.S. has like murdered uh, you know a million brown people over like the last thirteen years, and people every day wake up and send their kids to school to be dumbed down. You know, it's like the the questions are fun, but we you know it's also we should look at all the simple stuff sitting right in front of our eyes. Right, and we're 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 fans of. Sam Harris, here, we mentioned his podcast fairly frequently, and he's he's gotten some flack, strangely, for using thought experiments because people think they kind of have no value in in uh, examining ethics, and I think that's you know that's just people kind of grasping at straws to find ways to hate this guy, and the singularity uh, in the no tech people. Um, are often bringing up self-driving cars as a place where these thought experiments become incredibly real, especially with things like the trolley problem. We may have to program cars to decide whether or not it kills four people or one people in certain scenarios. Um, so, you know, if we're programming artificial intelligences, those are decisions we're going to have to make at some point, and they stop being philosophical um, novelties and they start being like very hard realities. So I'm on team Sam in that, in that situation. Scott, you got anything else? I think that's it. I will uh, run through mine very briefly. I have, um, I won't shut the fuck up about my diet. And <laughs> lately I've watched, uh, this documentary called, um, that sugar film which is delightful and it stars this Australian guy who is so comfortable in his own skin. I like wasn't sure if I was just incredibly jealous of him and hated him, but I don't. And he is um, delightful and the movie's delightful, but it's just about how much sugar is in our food, even in food that we think is supposed to be healthy um, and how damaging that is to your body. I listened to the Tim Ferriss podcast with this guy, uh, Dr. Dominic Diagostino, about uh, ketogenic dieting, and it's extremely interesting and worth checking out. Um, also, a Smart Drug Smarts podcast, a recent one on intermittent fasting that was also uh, incredibly interesting, and I recommend both of those very highly. I'll just add a, another quick one there, too. That podcast in general is is pretty high quality and he, smart drug smarts yes and yeah. that, that um the host of that whose name escapes me was a recent guest on the robot overlords and that was a, a good episode as well cool I, I would just like to uh thank you jeff on behalf of the the three of us and uh singularity bros nation which is the first time those three words have ever been said in sequence um <laughs> for coming onto the show and uh, i think we would love to have you back man yeah that would be great uh and i presume it's okay if i repost this into my podcast feed absolutely cool. too. and people can find okay, you cool. at 500years.com uh 500 years spelled out in uh, characters uh, dot org dot org cool anywhere else they can find you anywhere else they that you want them to find you preferably not at home in real life <laughs> yeah no they and then um i think my other websites are listed there and then of course you can amazon rise above school to get my book awesome awesome well thanks again jeff it was awesome great we'll have a great night thank awesome. you 
Thank you, Singularity Bros Nation, for tuning into the program. Uh, if you would like to support the podcast, you can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or just this podcast because you use the, just a different client to get this podcast because, you know, you don't want anybody to know because it's super soft, soft, super soft. Yeah, super top secret tech. Um, <laughs> you can email us at singularitybros at gmail.com. And as always, find us at twitter.com slash singularitybros. Um, it was a good show. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back next week as we always are. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on Singularity Bros. To find out more, visit our website at singularitybros.com or follow us on Twitter at Singularity Bros.